Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Friday, April 7th, we are studying John chapter 19, verses 31 to 42. In today's text, Jesus' body is removed from the cross, and he is buried by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jacob Dandy. Pastor Dandy serves at Zion Lutheran Church and School in Terrabella, California. Pastor Dandy, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. As we get started today, Pastor Dandy, give us some context. We are at the end of John 19. What should we know as we prepare to look at the account of Jesus being taken from the cross and buried? Yeah, so we are at the point in the passion of Jesus where he is dead. And as we as we go through it and just kind of maybe track the events in the Gospel of John, you know, he's He's been hung upon the cross. The, the whole event of the crucifixion has happened. They've cast lots for his clothing. He's made provision for both John and Mary to care for each other. He said, I'm thirsty, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And now he has said to Telestai, it's finished. And at that, he bows his head. He gives up his spirit. And now what we're leading into at this point is the maybe and just to give it a liturgical context this is the the point between like the second to last of the passion readings and the strepitus on good friday right this is where uh jesus is dead what does it mean and what do we do next right quite literally in the context of the people around this event in the text and so what we're getting into now is first john say giving us information that demonstrates Absolutely, Jesus is dead, but then also he, he gives us a bunch of information that, well, not a bunch of information, but a bunch of truths that reveals to us that this death has meaning and is a witness of a greater reality for us. And so that's kind of where we're at at this point. All right. Well, let's go ahead and read the text. Again, we're reading now in John 19, beginning at verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation... And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. 
and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about seventy-five pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. That's our text for today. That is John 19, verses 31 to 42. All right, so Pastor Danny, our text begins, it's still Good Friday, and John tells us that the Jews didn't want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath. That's the day that's coming. And so they asked Pilate that the legs would be broken of those crucified. Just talk to us about why that request was made. What? Why would you break the legs of someone who's been who's being crucified? Well, yeah, and so they're and crucifix is just it, like the, the Romans. They 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 really wanted to devise a way that made death as miserable as possible, <clears throat> and they wanted to prolong the suffering as much as they can. And so you know, crucifixion. You know, you you have. There's the, you know, the piercings, the being hung on the tree, all of that. But really it's, it's a slow death by association. You know, you, you, you know, you have your arms pulled out over your head for a prolonged period of time. And, you know, you, you have that pain on your shoulders, you have the pain in your back. It's also putting stress on your chest and your torso. It makes it difficult to breathe. And so then in order to catch your breath, you know, you push up on your feet and up on your legs and that would cause you to be able to breathe more freely. Of course, your legs can't do that forever. Your feet are literally nailed to the cross or tied to the cross, but most likely in Jesus' case, we see they were nailed. And so, you know, there's pain and exhaustion that comes into that. And so you, you end up slouching down and eventually you, you are so exhausted that you, you hang there and you can't breathe. Well, breaking the legs would just expedite that process of being asphyxiated where that, 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 ability to draw breath no longer is there your 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 chest and your torso your your diaphragm and all that stuff that really makes it to where you can breathe become strained and exhausted and that's that's how you die from crucifixion Hmm. all right so well yeah so that's that's why they ask for the legs to be broken because that's going to mm -hmm. hasten the process of dying so Pilate grants this request and the soldiers go to the two criminals who have been crucified with Jesus on either side, and they do break mm-hmm. their legs. But then John says that they see that Jesus has already died, so they don't break his legs. Instead, his side gets pierced with a spear. And this is where John begins to to point out all kinds of significance to us. So help yes. us to, to see the things that John tells us here. Well, oh, and first, I, I, I want to make a quick comment. I You know, it's just, I was thinking about this reviewing the text this morning is that you know the request and the reason they wanted them their legs to be broken you know they had the 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 kind of special sabbath with the passover coming up and all of that stuff but there's also a passage in deuteronomy 21 and it says if a man's committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree his body shall not remain all night on the tree but you shall bury him the same day hmm. where a man hanged a hanged man is cursed by God, and you shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, right? 
And, and you think about that, you think about the Jewish leaders who, who really pushed for Christ to be crucified and they're, they're concerned about their land not being defiled by having the crucified Christ hanging on a tree overnight. And yet what's the thing that defiles them, right? It's their sin. And, and the reason I bring that up is because of, of what, what we learn here from the significance of these events that take place where Jesus died is peers, because as they are concerned about not being defiled through this maybe violation of the civil law of the Jews, they don't want the land to be defiled. What is Jesus doing? But he's purifying the consciences and making atonement for the sins of the world and purifying the consciences of those who would believe in him. Mm. Right. And so we, we see that John kind of makes a few points about fulfillment of prophecy along with that, you know, that, that Jesus is pierced. His bones are not broken. Uh, that goes back to Exodus chapter 12, as it gives instructions for the Passover land. It says that the Passover should be eaten in one house. You shouldn't, shouldn't take any of the flesh outside and you shouldn't break any of its bones. Right. And so here we have Jesus as the, the, the Passover lamb being slain and his bones are not broken, right? Here he is the perfect Passover lamb, the one that is the fulfillment of all the lambs that had been killed from the Exodus up until the time where Jesus dies. And then Jesus' side is pierced. That's from Zechariah 12 and also from Psalm 22. Uh, Zechariah 12, it says, and I will pour out on the house of David, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace, pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. And so as they, they look on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, God will give them grace and they will see the one whom they have pierced. And in Psalm 22, it says, for dogs encompass me, a, a company of evildoers encircles me and they have pierced my hands and my feet. And so here we kind of have been even kind of greater significance behind this that a while the other two criminals bones are not our bones are broken christ isn't and what why is that well he's the passover lamb and so why would they pierce him well they they, they pierce him because uh he is the one who is pierced to bring grace to jerusalem he's the one who is is pierced as the one who delivers the people of god and Luther, he makes a comment about that. And he says, with this account, John tells us and wants to show us nothing to befall Christ without the counsel and foreknowledge of his father in heaven, right? And he says, it would scarcely have entered the soldier's mind, not to break Jesus's legs, but instead to pierce his side with a spear. We see that God rules their hearts and minds so that they think he's already dead. We don't need to break his legs. Instead, we'll give him a stab in case. He is perhaps not dead, right? And so, you know, what's Luther Luther pointing out here? He's saying, you know, he's in, God Himself is ensuring that the Scriptures are fulfilled and everything around Jesus' death, so that we can look on Him with full certainty and know He is the promised Christ. He is the Passover Lamb. He is the one who is pierced on our behalf. Mm. This theme of Jesus as the Passover Lamb has been present in John's Gospel all the way back to the preaching of John the Baptist who identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now we come full mm -hmm. circle to that 
as we see Jesus as the Passover lamb whose bones are not broken, the one who truly sets us free from slavery, from slavery to sin and to death. And in him, in the Son, we are free indeed, as Jesus has said previously in this gospel in John chapter 8. Just briefly, I want to I go back to that comment that you made about the, the passage from Deuteronomy 21. And it, it's striking to me that if, if the religious leaders do have in mind not having their land cursed because of what Deuteronomy 21 says, it comes off as rather shallow given their actions mm-hmm. so far. And the, the same thing was true previously when they didn't want to go into Pilate's headquarters because they didn't want to be defiled and in order yeah. to observe the Passover, that they've shown themselves to be defiled just by the way that they have treated Jesus and have refused to accept him as the one who brings purification. And yet Jesus does yeah. go willingly to bring that purification. And that even goes back to, to those stone water jars in John chapter 2 that were used for purification. Here, here we see the one who truly brings cleansing from sin, Jesus. And even though those who have put him there are not going to receive that in faith, truly he is bringing cleansing from sin in what he's doing. So these, these actions that are taken, the fact that his bones are not broken and that his side is pierced, both of these fulfill the scriptures, a reminder that, that the Lord is the one who is directing these events. These things are, are not happening outside of his will, but in fact are in concert with what he desires for the salvation of sinners. Now, when Jesus' side is pierced, John tells us that at once there came blood and water. I think you said earlier, Pastor Dandy, that, that among some things, this, this does show that Jesus was in fact dead, but there's, there's also probably some theological significance going on here as well. Talk to us about the blood and water that come from Jesus' side. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, John actually writes about this in his first epistle. He, he, he talks about the water and the blood being a witness, right? Or giving a testimony. First of who died? Well, first, I think first we need to say, the, well, the testimony is that he is, in fact, dead. His, his side is pierced, right? And, you know, I don't want to get too deeply into this because I'm not a medical doctor. And, you know, I don't think the scriptures really intend for this, this testimony to be interpreted too naturalistically. I think we should take this as a miraculous sign from God. But there, there is that kind of phenomenon of what it called hypovolemic shock or something like that, where you get uh, uh, fluid crowding around the heart when a person's going through a lot of, of stress. And then, you know, that, that, that fluid... And a lot of people say Jesus' side was pierced, that fluid would have come out along with blood. I don't really know too much about that, but, but the fact of the matter is, if you know, his side is pierced, he, he's, he's certainly dead. And that's maybe one of the first things that we want to acknowledge from this, is that as, as that spear goes into his side, any question about whether or not Jesus actually dies right should be silenced you know oh he he was you know in a coma he was unconscious he he, you know whatever and and that's that maybe is an attempt to explain away the resurrection or something like that no he is dead the the his you know as the scriptures say his spirit has departed from him right he gave up his spirit but you know here we have like enough physiological evidence here he's dead but then also we see John in his, his first epistle, he says that this is a testimony of what the death does, who died and what that death means for all of those who look at him. It says, this is the one who came by water and blood. 
Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree, right? And so we, we look at this, the spirit, the water, and the blood. We have John here as the witness of this event taking place. And what's he saying? Jesus died. And, and so then what does that death of sinners or death for Christ mean? Well, it means that his death is poured out for sinners, right? And so when we, we think about this, maybe one of the first things we should think about is that this, this is why we, we think about this and a lot of people explain it with maybe some medical terms. I think we need to think about this in the way that, that, that scripture really describes it, that this is a testimony of who has died for us and what pours out from that cross, what is given from that cross. You know, I have a, a and, and this is kind of a popular motif in a lot of Reformation and Middle Age art, but I have a painting in my office of Jesus being crucified and you see his pierced thigh and out from the pierced side, you have both a communion chalice and a baptismal font collecting the water and the blood, right? And so what do we see? Well, well flowing forth from this crucifixion of Jesus, this death of Christ, well, we have the atonement for our sins. We have grace to settle the did and afflicted conscience. We have the, the, the comfort and assurance that we have atonement and forgiveness in this death. And so Martin Luther, he, he puts it this way. He says, when the water and the blood flow from Christ's pierced side, St. John indicates that it's a miracle. It is natural when a man's wounded and killed and blood comes forth, especially while the body is still fresh. But the blood and the water flowing together from Christ's side, as soon as it opened, is a sign and a miracle. And in Christ's body, there's water and there's blood, and they're ready to issue forth only to thrust open the body so that it can flow out. And so here we have the assurance and comfort that our sins are forgiven, right? And so, and, and so as we, we, we think about the, the pouring out of the water and blood, there, there's also maybe a way to think about that in terms of, of the sealing of a new covenant, right? We, we, so when we think in the Old Testament, especially about the, the pouring forth of the blood, we first think about the people of Israel on Mount, at the feet of Mount Sinai, right? And they're assembled there at the foot of the mountain. They hear the law of God. They hear God saying, I'm making my covenant with you. And then how is the covenant ratified? Well, they sprinkled blood over the people of Israel, right? That it's, it's sealed in this covenantal blood. And then we see in, in the old heaven also then that, you know, we have the blood poured out at the base of the altar as, as people come and make sacrifice in the tabernacle. And then later in the temple, they, they pour out this blood for sins and offerings and all sorts of things. But ultimately we also then see on the day of atonement where this, this event once a year where, where the priest would then enter into the most holy place in the temple. They would enter behind the veil to the Holy of Holies. And, and, and what would they do? Well, they would come make intercession on behalf of God's people. And then they would sprinkle blood over the Ark of the Covenant. And, and you think about what's in the Ark of the Covenant. You have 
You have the, the tablets of the testimony. You have the Ten Commandments inside the Ark of the Covenant. And so what's happening? Well, over the mercy seat of the Ark, that lid of the Ark with the two cherubim on either side, that's symbolic of God's throne. Over this mercy seat, we don't meet judgment in the law, but we receive mercy, right? And so as we think about the old covenant, the day of the atonement, the mercy seat, now we think about the new covenant and the new covenant is being sealed in the, in the blood of Christ. And actually, you know, Paul picks up this language very, very clearly in, in Romans three, where you, you, you could translate the, oh, well, here, we'll, we'll read it, but it's just through the redemption accomplished through Christ Jesus, whom God put forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. That word propitiation, we could also really possibly translate it as a mercy seat, right? And so what, what's happening? The, the blood of Jesus is now the full and perfect final sacrifice in blood. Ephesians, we have, in him we have redemption through his blood, namely the forgiveness of sins. In Hebrews, it says, Christ, by means of his own blood, entered once and for all into the holy place. Once again, day of atonement language, entering into the holy place and obtained an eternal redemption. And again, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood, but under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, right? And so we, we think about just maybe the language of the blood flowing out from our Lord's side. We, we think about not just Christ being the Passover lamb, but also Christ being the blood of the atonement poured out on the mercy seat once and for all. And, and, and that really leads us into the, you know, what happened the night before when Jesus is betrayed. What, what does he say? He says, drink of all of you. This cup is the new covenant or new testament of my blood. Hmm. Right? It's the blood that, that is spilled once and for all for all the sins of the world. And so as we, as we think about that first, the, the first witness, the first testimony is the, is the blood that issues forth from Christ's side. Well, we think about the, the ultimate and final atonement that we receive through the forgiveness of sins. Mm. Well, talk about the, the water as well. Then you mentioned the, the crucifix that you've got where the, the blood is being caught in a chalice and the, the water in a font. So the, how does the water tie into this with the witness? Yeah. Yeah, and so when we think about the water, well, the water is the daily washing that we receive through our baptism, right? Yeah, and we remember when we talk about baptism, we don't talk about it as a past tense event, but we talk about it as a, you know, present and continual reality. You don't say I was baptized. We say I am baptized, right? And, and we see continually throughout scripture that baptism is connected to the crucifixion maybe and maybe the best place that we can think about that is in romans 6 right where in romans 6 we we see that connection that the the baptism of a christian is connected to the death of christ right do you not know all of us who have been baptized into christ jesus were baptized into his death we're buried, therefore, with him by baptism to the death in order that just as Christ is raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life, right? And so when we think about the, the, the blood pouring out, we think about that 
that final propitiation for our sin, when we think about the water pouring out, well, we think about that as how the Holy Spirit daily sanctifies us, how he daily washes and purifies us through the Holy Word. Martin Luther, he talks about this in his, one of his sermons on this text. He says, for even though we're baptized, believe in Christ and have the forgiveness of sins through faith in his blood, nevertheless, we still have our flesh hanging around our necks, flesh that is full of evil, lust, and sin that fight against the spirit. And St. Paul teaches that we are opposed to each other so that we do not do what we like. And that's why it's necessary that we be continually washed and purified through the blood that we are redeemed. Through the water, we are daily washed, cleansed, and purified. The blood accomplishes the forgiveness of sins and the redemption from evil. The water accomplishes the cleansing of the remaining sins and the evil lust until we become entirely pure. And so what we think about maybe with the blood, we think about the full atonement made. With the water, maybe we think about now this, this freedom from the bondage that we have to our sinful flesh. Because as we have that perfect atonement and forgiveness of sins, now we have the, the continual washing, purification, sanctification that the Spirit works through us as we live as baptized Christians. It's, it's like that fourth part of baptism in the this, this small catechism where it, it asks, uh, what does such baptism with water indicate, right? And it's, it says that the old Adam in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sinful desires that a new man should daily emerge and rise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. And so when we, we see that water flow from our Lord's side and we remember our baptism, we remember that each and every day as we, we, as we live and breathe, as we stand before God, as we live by faith, that, that, that old Adam is being drowned, right? And yeah. that water from holy baptism, the old Adam is being put to death. So that as, as that is drowned out, is that, that maybe even as we think about maybe Peter, that appeal to a clean conscience before God, not as a removal of a dirt from the body, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are forgiven that, that reality that's just continually set upon us through our baptism, as we live by faith in Christ alone, frees us from the, the, the filth of the sin that corrupts every single day of our life. All right, uh, Pastor Dandy, so, let's let's go yeah. ahead. Let's we can keep talking about the water on the other side, but we do need to take a break. You're listening to <laughs> that's okay. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUL. We're talking to Pastor Jacob Dandy this morning about John 19. We will be right back. Please stick around. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. 
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, April 7th. We are studying John chapter 19, verses 31 to 42 with Pastor Jacob Dandy. He serves at Zion Lutheran Church and School in Terrabella, California. Pastor Dandy, prior to the break, we were talking about the witness of the water that is given. I, I interrupted you so we could take our break, but we are back. Tell us a little bit more about the witness of the water. You were connecting it to the, the work that God does for us in Holy Baptism. Yeah, yeah, and it's that that daily sanctification and purification that we have as the children of God. And so, I, I maybe, and this is a good way to maybe round round this idea out. This is a quote from John Chrysostom. He's talking about this this water and this blood flowing forth from the side of Jesus. And he says, "For there came forth water and blood, but not without a purpose or by chance did those founts come forth." But because by means of these two together, the church consists, and that the initiated know it, being by water indeed regenerate and nourished by the blood and the flesh. Hence the mysteries. And when, when we read John say, Chrysostom say mysteries, maybe we can, we can insert our, our Lutheran language of sacraments. Hence the mysteries take their beginning that when thou approachest to that awful cup, thou mayest so approach as drinking from the very side, right? And so maybe putting it together and thinking about this and, and how John really relates life to us and, and, and that, that Christ is this life of the world. What does Jesus say about himself continually throughout the gospel of John? Well, that you must be born again of water and the spirit, right? And that this being born from above by water and the spirit is is what gives a person eternal life through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He calls himself the living water, that whoever partakes of this living water will will never grow thirsty again and have eternal life. Um, that, that Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and whoever eats of this bread will have life in my name, right? And now now we also then have the, the blood of Christ, right? So whoever partakes of the body and the blood of Jesus, right? And so when we, we think about the, the water and the blood and the spirit giving testimony to Jesus, being the one who has be first the son of God, but then also the one who makes this perfect and full propitiation for our sins. Well, we have to think about that in light of the life of the church, because what does the church revolve around? Well, the testimony of the spirit of God and the holy word as it's preached and taught and, and the, the, the baptism and, and the reality that we live under as baptized Christians and the reception and the faithful receiving and a distribution of the body and blood of Jesus to those who, who desire the forgiveness of sins from the altar of God. And so that, that water, that blood, and that spirit serve as a beautiful and perfect testimony 
of everything the church revolves its existence around. And so I think that's a, a kind of a, a hopeful and, and kind of blessed idea that we live under is that as we gather around as God's church, as we, we come to church on Sunday or Wednesday or, or whatever day of the week, we, we, we celebrate our, our church services. Uh, we, we live in a blessing that flows directly from the cross of Jesus from his pierced side and, and from what he has obtained for us on the cross. Pastor Danny, in John 19, verse 35, John speaks about himself as a witness. Why is it important that John is an eyewitness to these events? Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's that, that oh, you say the water and the blood came out, right? Well, well, how do you know? Well, he said, I'm there, right? I was there. I saw it. It took place, right? And so when he says, he who saw it bore witness, his testimony is true, and he knows he's telling the truth that you may believe. And I think that's the, the key part there. He says, I'm writing this down. I'm relating to you what I saw. I have sworn that I am telling the truth. And I'm not doing that just to, you know, vindicate myself or to, to, to garner attention to myself. And I think one of the reasons you can definitely make that case for John is because he, he doesn't name himself saying, I, John, saw this, right? He's saying he who saw it was there, right? And he never, he doesn't actually directly name himself, I think, until what, chapter 20, or 21 of, of this gospel. And I think that the idea there is that it's that you may believe, right? And, and that's something that John picks up more than once in this, this gospel too. You know, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ of the son of God. And, and I, so it, it's, it's for this direct purpose. It's not to, to put attention to John, but it's to recount to you that this is a reality. This happened. Jesus died. This death has meaning. The Holy Spirit testifies. God testifies through the events that took place that Jesus has died for the sins of the world. Believe in it. It's a reliable and good thing to believe in. Now, after the account of Jesus' death comes the account of Jesus' burial. John gives us some details that the Synoptic Gospels don't. We find out not only about Joseph of Arimathea, but also Nicodemus's role. Tell us some mm -hmm. of the things that John gives us concerning the burial of Jesus here. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, we've got two disciples of Jesus. First, we have Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple, but secretly. that he And he, he actually approaches Pilate and asks him to take the body down. And Pilate gives him permission, right? And so Joseph, of you know, we can maybe gather from some of this information that he's a, he's a man of some sort of connection and means. And you know, he's he's also from Arimathea. That's that's actually the historic home of the prophet Samuel. I don't know if that's maybe that's just a bit of trivia, but an interesting tidbit at the very least. But we see that he he's. Also a man of means. He's rich. He he has this this the means to be able to provide a good burial for Christ. But we also see that he was up until this moment a disciple of Jesus secretly, 
right? He feared the Jews. He wasn't going to boldly speak, but that, that time, that bold, that time for holding back your, your bold confession, that's come to an end, right? And so now they, they're going to demonstrate great honor, uh, and, and offering Jesus a proper burial, his convictions about Jesus are now going to be made known. And then we also then have Nicodemus. You know, Nicodemus, we, we, we met him twice already in this gospel. First, we meet Nicodemus in First John 3, when that's when he comes and visits Jesus by night, once again, for the same reason, for fear of the Jews. He, he doesn't want people to see him as, the, as a follower of Jesus. We also see him in John chapter 7, and he, he's kind of making his, his point, because this is one of the points in times where they decide, hey, Jesus is a, a false teacher, he's a cursed, you know, this right, right after Jesus says he's the light of the world, and you know, they, they all get mad at him, and Nicodemus goes out before them and says, hey, why are we, why are we judging this man without offering him a proper hearing? Right. And then they, of course, accuse him of being a Galilean. You're a Galilean too. You know, see no good prophet comes from Galilee. Right. And so your Nicodemus is, is one who has also been secretly a follower of Jesus, but he's also a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a part of the Jewish councils, all of these things. And what's he doing? Well, he's bestowing great honor to Christ as well. His time for secrecy is over. And so I, I find this to be completely interesting. We see that the, the 12 have, have been scattered, right? The, the, you know, Judas, of course, is the betrayer. We see Peter has denied the Christ. We, we see that nine of the others are, are wherever they are, most likely hiding for fear of the Jews. John is the only one who has stood at the foot of the cross with, with Mary and a few other women watching Jesus be crucified. But as the, the disciples and the sheep are scattered, God still calls these men to bestow and place Jesus into his new undefiled tomb, right? They, they, they bear the expense of anointing him. Uh, what was it? How many pounds of spices and aloes and, 75 and, and all of these pounds? Things? Yeah. And, you know, I don't even want to think about how much that actually costs in, in those days. This is, this is an expense. Also, you know, the expense of having a tool built for yourself and then having someone else laid in it, I think is, is, is quite significant. You know, you think about you know, Joseph Arimathea really kind of giving his, setting up this tomb where there's going to be this private garden and this, this, this area for his family and friends to come and mourn him when his time comes. And, and what's he doing now? He's, he's giving it to Jesus. Maybe, maybe one of the, you know, you think about the, the cost of a burial nowadays and, you know, as pastors, we probably have more exposure to that than a lot of people do. But, you know, sometimes just the, the basic brass tacks cost of a funeral, it's like, it's like buying a new pickup truck or something. It's, it's an expensive process. And then you see what, what's Joseph do? He has all of his arrangements made. He has all of the cost paid for. And now he gives it to Jesus, right? To show honor to the, the body of, of his Lord as it's, it's now maybe in a bit of a rush because the sun will be setting soon. But certainly, reverently, in great love, 
prepared and 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 sealed and laid to rest in the tomb. And so as we as we think about these these two men and and what they do, first maybe one of the things that we should think about is, you know, how their action here is a confession of of their faith in the man whom they are bestowing honor upon. Hmm. That that Nicodemus has heard the preaching of Jesus. He perhaps maybe is recalling what, what Jesus said to him in John chapter 3 about the Son of Man being lifted up just as the bronze serpent was lifted up so that whoever looks upon him might have their sin forgiven. And that for God so loved the world that he gives his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Maybe all of these things are clicking. And then we see and know the water and blood uh, have poured out from the side of Jesus and they see that in this man they have the forgiveness of sins in this man they see that their Lord has given all for them and so what do they do they make confession and how they lay our Lord Jesus to rest it is a, a remarkable confession as you said the the expense that would have been involved it's striking that both of these men had been secret disciples of Jesus, but they're now starting to come out into the open more concerning their faith in Christ by going before Pilate to ask for the body involves a, a public confession to a degree. It's not not as full as it will become, but it is striking to see that. One of the details that John gives us that I've always found very striking is not only the fact that this is a new tomb, but it's also located in a garden. And and I've I've always I've always made a, a connection here that that you see the the full arc of the scriptures and the the narrative of God's work in history come to its its center and its climax right here and i've i've noted and i someone pointed this out to me i don't remember who but i i found it just a, a wonderful point that the scriptures start in a garden you have the garden of eden and the scriptures end in a garden. You have the garden that, that St. John will describe in his Revelation where the, the tree of life is and that wonderful river of life there at the end in the book of Revelation. Well, how do you get from how do you get from that garden at the beginning to the garden at the end? It is through this garden, through the garden of Jesus' cross and his empty tomb, as as we'll see in the coming chapter. There's a there's a spoiler alert. This is going to air on Good Friday, but everyone knows how this is going to, to end. So but I mean I, I love this that it's that it's in a garden. I I just I find that the the way that God works in history it's so masterful and I I don't think that's an accident by any means and the fact that John takes the time to point it out to us I find very significant. Yeah, I I think you're I think you're exactly right and 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 maybe a good way to to, to think about this with with the garden in light the maybe costly confession and adoration that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea show here is that when Jesus said it is finished, that's the end of his humiliation, right? When he's taken down from the cross, he's taken down from the cross, adored by those who have faith in him. And he's taken down from the cross and his, and his body is laid to rest. He, he's being put into that, that day of Sabbath rest, right? That, that here we have Jesus fulfilling all Sabbaths as his body lays in this tomb. And, and that, you know, we say he's crucified, died and buried. Mm -hmm. There's the end. 
right? And I loved our Good Fridays services for that reason. Go to Good Friday services today. You've got lots of time. Make it work, right? All of you who are listening. Because in many churches, especially in the, the evening tenebrae type services, the service is going to end with a strepitous. And that's, that's when after the final passion reading, after the final prayer is spoken, all the lights are out. If you do the dimming of the lights thing in your church or whatever, that's when the, the Bible is slammed as it slams shut. You're in the room in darkness. Everyone leaves in silence, right? And, and, and why is that? That, well, the tomb is sealed, that the, the darkness is sealed in the tomb, that the humiliation of Christ is done and as as the dead body of Christ is, is set in the tomb, that's where death remains. Death remains in the darkness. Death remains in that tomb, but Jesus doesn't. And so we, we see that kind of beautiful reality of, of the garden around the tomb, you know, as this, this, this perfect maybe symbol of Eden being restored, that the wages of sin is it's set aside that you know what 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 was the big curse of sin well it's ultimately that when you eat of the fruit you will die and that's what happens with adam adam dies adam's children die we as children of adam also die but but death reigns no more uh uh, and as we see Jesus burst from this tomb, he burst into this garden and Gethsemane, or not Gethsemane, a garden near the place of the crucifixion. Well, he, he, he ushers in white and white yeah. and eternity into the people of God. Mm. That's a good observation and a good point. Well, and, and especially just, you know, the fact that there is a garden here and we're, we're not too far away from the place that was called the place of the skull, as John just said in the previous text. What a, what a striking contrast that, that through this, this tree of the cross, which, which is a symbol of death, yet God is going to bring new life. The fact that here, here he is in the garden, that, that is a sign that, yes, life is close at hand. Jesus is buried mm-hmm. in anticipation of his resurrection. We've got about five minutes here, Pastor Dandy. Just thinking about the the burial of Jesus, you you quoted from the creed, and it's a part of the creed that Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. And sometimes we just sort of say that because, well, of course, that's what you do after someone has died. You've buried him. And yet each of the evangelists makes the point of recording something about Jesus' burial. So with these last few minutes here, talk to us about the, the theological significance of the fact that Jesus is buried. Why, why is that an important point more than just that's kind of what you do? Why is this important for us to, to keep in mind as Christians? Well, and, and well, there, and there's a, there's a couple of significant factors here in terms of, you know, well, first we have the, the Sabbath rest of Jesus, right? What day does Jesus rest in the tomb? It's, it's Holy Saturday. That's, that's where we have our Easter vigil. That's where, you know, the, the people live in that kind of anxious anticipation of the coming of Easter day. But as we, as we, we look at this, we can see the fulfillment of all Sabbath and Jesus laying in the tomb on our behalf. So we, we have that comfort and that assurance. Also then we, we see that in, in the burial of Jesus and, and maybe here, let me flip this real quick. I know I don't have a whole lot of time, but we think about our, our committal liturgy. When we, when we bury a Christian, we, we bury them in the sure and certain hope 
of the, the resurrection of their body that that just as Jesus now his his tomb was sealed and and extra seal posted guards all of these things but but the tomb could not contain the risen Christ that's the same now reality that we have imposed upon us as Christians that that as we now are baptized into Christ we are baptized into his death and his resurrection as we bear his image and who we are and 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 what God has now refashioned us into being our tombs no longer hold us up to the point of Christ the tomb is where you went to rest with your fathers forever and that's where your body laid until the end of time and now what do we see well that tomb is a temporary resting place and and that maybe that's the a good good point to to think maybe and that's something to meditate on as we confess the creed as the people of God is that 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 tomb now is our tomb. It, it does not steal us. It's a tomb that's meant to be opened again. Hmm. Yeah, you, you mentioned the liturgy at the committal. And one of the, the phrases that's striking within the committal is that refers to the burial of Jesus within one of the prayers, by his rest, by Jesus' rest in the tomb, you sanctified the graves of your saints. You made those graves holy, which is a, a strange thing perhaps to say when you think about a, a cemetery, that that is a holy place. And yet, mm-hmm. because Jesus was laid in his tomb, and he came forth, so our tombs become that place of rest for us, from which Jesus will awaken us. Thinking earlier in the Gospel of John, when Jesus went to Lazarus, and before he, he went there, he talked about how Lazarus was going to fall asleep, or had fallen asleep. And for the mm-hmm. Christian Death is a sleep because it is that from which Christ awakens us. The The graves in which we lay our loved ones who have died in Christ, they will be awakened from those graves on the last day. And seeing Jesus here buried is a reminder that those graves in which we lay our, our Christian loved ones, those are holy places where Christ, he is not absent, but he is, is there, and he will awaken our loved ones from their rest in sleep, just as he rose from his rest. That is what is coming in a few days. Here we have the text for Good Friday and for Holy Saturday. Pastor Jacob Dandy is pastor at Zion Lutheran Church and School in Terrabella, California. He's been helping us today to study John chapter 19, verses 31 to 42. Pastor Dandy, thanks for being our guest today. Real pleasure. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Jesus died and was buried for you, dear people of God. He loves you. He has sacrificed himself for you. His blood covers you. You are forgiven. God bless your Good Friday, your Holy Saturday, and your Easter Sunday as you celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.